On today's show, we're going to talk about tonight's matchup with the Houston Rockets and why it's an important game for Denver Nuggets, not just this season, but for their franchise. And then going to spend the rest of the show talking about the new CBA and my perspective on it, going through all of the major changes, talking about the ones I like, the ones I don't like, and the ones I'm TBD on. This is Locked on Nuggets. You are Locked on Nuggets, your daily Denver Nuggets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is up, everybody, and welcome to Locked On Nuggets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We appreciate you making this your first listen each and every day. We're free and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Matas of DNVR. Matt Moore has the day off. He got fake springed. Um, he, was, he was too into spring. He thought it was here, and then the snow arrived today. Totally threw him off. And so he's going to be sitting this one out. I'll be going solo for you guys. Um, so today's show, I want to spend the first segment just briefly talking about this game uh, coming up against the Houston Rockets and why it's important. Um, it's actually not that important of a game overall. You know, Denver can clinch the one seed. They're going to clinch it almost certainly one way or another. That's why I don't think it's particularly like um, carries a ton of weight. You could argue it's the easiest game remaining on Denver's schedule. They have Houston tonight. They get a day off on Wednesday. On Thursday, they go to Phoenix. By the way, Phoenix Suns, say what you will about them, didn't look good against Denver, whatever. They are undefeated since getting Kevin Durant 6-0, something to kind of monitor. Thursday night's game will also be on TNT, nationally televised game, the last one of the regular season for the Nuggets. Um, then they are at Utah two nights later on Saturday, another game that probably will be easy. But here's the thing. It's at Utah, which is always a hard place to play. And it's a 1.30 game, which anything can happen. And then Sunday, they have a daytime game, 1.30, against the Sacramento Kings at home. So you fly from Utah to Denver to play a back-to-back. The whole NBA, I believe, is – or not the whole NBA. Almost the whole NBA is on a second night of a back-to-back. Everybody plays um, on Sunday to wrap up the season. And I think most teams, that will be the second night of a back-to-back. So, um, so you got that game which again, probably won't matter. So that's another game you say, like if you're looking at Denver's schedule saying they have to get one more, I think if they desperately needed it, they could get three, maybe even four, but they could definitely get three, Houston, Utah, and Sacramento. Um, But you would always love to just wrap things up and then be able to pick and choose how much you play. If Denver wins tonight, they will be. it will be the first time in franchise history that they have won the one seed in the Western Conference. They joined the NBA in 1976. Before that, they were in the ABA for eight or nine years. I don't remember the exact. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up to see the exact uh, number of years. And they won the ABA. I mean, the ABA started with like 10 teams. And so it wasn't a very big league. And it would be divided into two divisions, basically an East and a West. And Denver won the Western division uh, three separate times. I believe 1970, 1975, and 1976. Um, they went to the ABA championship in 1976. So they had um, very they had success as an ABA franchise. Of course, um, you had Dan Nissel, Byron Beck. You had some of the, some of the old timers that are hanging up in the in the rafters there. They had good teams, but it was a ten person or twelve person league or twelve team league is kind of small. Joining the NBA, obviously a much bigger league. They've never come in first. They've had fifty Denver now at fifty two wins. If they win tonight, they'll get to fifty three, which will tie the fifth best record. So there'll be six teams in NBA history for the Denver Nuggets that got 53 wins. I believe I got that right. Let me, let me look at this up just to be, um, just to be perfectly clear that I didn't mix, mix this up. 
when, let's see, one of those, or two of those were in ABA season. So yeah, you had 52 wins this year. You had 53 in 2010. You had 54 in 2009 and 1988, respectively, as well as 2019. This was a Jokic era, 2018-19, when they got 54. And you had uh, 57 in, in 2013. So that's one, two, three, four. Yeah, so this will tie the fifth best record in NBA history. You did have two 60-win seasons in the ABA, um, but this will tie a top five wins as an NBA franchise. And then, of course, if you get two more, you will tie for second best record in Denver Nuggets NBA franchise history. So Denver has, I mean, if you care about such things, I think they're cool. They do stand, you know, whenever I look back at the history of the Denver Nuggets, these years do stand out. You kind of sort for win percentage, you sort for um, best years. And, you know, it's always interesting to look at. So I do think there would be something to Denver having the second best record this year that they've ever had. But being the number one seed, you know, typically it takes 60 wins or so to win. I don't, I don't know what the average is. I would guess the average is about 58 wins wins the, your conference. Um, so the fact that Denver has a chance to do this with just 53 is a little bit of an anomaly, but it's still cool. It's still a big milestone, and it would be one of those ones that goes in the record books. When I think about best teams all time in the Denver Nuggets era, you have to go with the teams that made the Western Conference Finals. You just have to go, you have to start with those because I think playoff success um, means the most. And in that, you get um, 2020, obviously the bubble year. You get 2009, which everybody thinks about the six game series with Chauncey and, and Carmelo losing to Kobe Bryant. You get 1985, which is the famous Fat Lever and um, Alex English year. And then you go all the way back to 1978 before that. So the four teams. That's where you kind of start playoff success. Then you start to go to regular season and you get, okay, well, the 2013 team had the best regular season. They did, they got injury luck going into the playoffs, but they can at least have a conversation. I don't think anybody thinks the 2013 team is the best Nuggets team ever, but they at least get mentioned in the conversation. You know, depending on what Denver does in the playoffs this year, this is another piece to say, hey, this was the first year they ever won the conference uh, in a pretty flat year, but they still won the conference, that automatically gives them a little bit of a, okay, this team stands out and they have a, a leg to stand on as best ever. Um, so I think it's kind of a cool thing tonight and and reason to sort of be excited for this game. Um, there's a little bit of historical implications. I've talked about this before, but I believe Michael Porter is now 13 threes away from having the single season record for most threes in a season. He is currently at 179, surpassing his previous healthy season, 2021, where he got 170. So it's pretty impressive that Michael Porter Jr. has two seasons of being in the top five and threes made. Now, Jamal Murray is only two behind his last year record. So Jamal Murray, one more game, he's likely to pass Michael Porter Jr., at least tie Michael Porter Jr. and be in a top five season. So it's cool that Denver has two players, 168 for Jamal Murray, 179 for Michael Porter who are within striking distance, at least, of that single-season record. And if Michael Porter Jr., he averages three threes a game. He's 13 behind. There's four games left. I don't think he plays in all of the games. But if he were, at his current rate, he would come one shy. Now, it's interesting to me because Dale Ellis currently holds that record, and he set it in 1997. A lot of people don't know this, but for a three-year period from 1995 to 1997, the NBA actually shortened the three-point line. They made it uniform. So the corner distance was the same as the top of the key dif difference. And that year, there's a lot of um, records that were set that year because the three-point line was shorter. It was a, it was a very anomalous season. Um, so I think Michael Porter is really only 10 threes behind Randy Foy, who has the 
regular three-point line single season record in 2013-14 of all of all times. So Michael Porter has a chance. I think he needs I he probably needs like a six or seven three game to to get there. But guess what? He's kind of on fire right now. And I wouldn't put it past him, especially against a horrible Houston Rockets defense. He has a chance tonight to really get close there. And then maybe it becomes a part of the conversation. Same goes for Jamal Murray. Maybe he has a big night tonight and he decides he wants to chase it as well. So those things are kind of interesting in my in my opinion for this one. Um, and then, of course, the big question everybody wants to know is, is Jokic going to play? Um, I don't know the answer to that. The team has been pretty tight-lipped about it. We'll see. Um, they have a two-game road trip here, obviously going to Houston and then back to Phoenix before coming uh, coming back to Denver. Is that right? Or did they go to Sacramento? Oh, no, then they go to Utah. So Houston, Phoenix, and then Utah, a little three-game road trip. So um, we'll see if Jokic participates in any of these games. Tonight would be a smart one. If he is healthy to go, I think tonight would be a smart one to play him because it should be pretty low leverage. He should be able to put up good numbers and get a comfortable win. And then you can kind of pick and choose what games, if any, you want him to play down the stretch. I think if he's healthy, I think there's reason to play. Even if you only play, say, tonight you play fully, how do you handle the last three games? Again, if he's healthy, meaning if it's not a real injury that you're you know, concerned about, and I'm not saying it hasn't been a real injury to this point, but there's a difference between I'm a little bit sore versus, hey, this strain, this is an actual strain that we probably just need to be off of. If it's a little soreness that has gone away over time, play tonight, and then down the stretch, I would actually rather see Denver play the starters in half of the game you know, roll them out against Phoenix and play them for the first half and then go with somebody else in the second half or Utah or Sacramento, maybe Sacramento, that second night of a back-to-back, -back, you just completely rest, or maybe the front end in Utah, you just completely rest the starters. But I think there's something to having him stay, having all the players sort of stay in game speed and game rhythm. They're going to get a week off from the last game of the season till the first game of the playoffs. They're going to have a full week off. That's where you can catch up on all your rest if you need. But you can't simulate playoff intensity or playoff speed in practice. So it'd be good for them to kind of establish that rhythm. I don't think there's anything the team is trying to learn about themselves uh, between now and then. But it is good just to kind of keep that rhythm. And then lastly, you know, I, talking to some of my colleagues at DNVR, there's a lot of people that aren't excited about this last week of the season. I am, not because there's anything for the main guys to do. But I so enjoyed watching Peyton Watson and Christian Brown and, and the guys that don't get a chance to play real meaningful minutes. I enjoyed getting to see them play and, and, and see what they have. And for me, Peyton Watson had a great game. I wrote on thedmvr.com today about how it reminds me a little bit of Jared Vanderbilt because I know everybody's saying, is Peyton Watson for real? Does this mean he's for real? And I say no. And I know a lot of people don't like that. It doesn't mean he's not for real. It just means he. I wasn't sure if he was a good prospect. Of all the prospects in the first round, Peyton Watson was the most mysterious in terms of we just don't have a lot of footage of him. We didn't have a lot to go off of. And yes, he has G League. It's hard to get a read of the G League. So just getting a chance to see him, the only thing that I think he answered was, yes, this guy is a good prospect. He has a lot of talent. Calvin Booth made the right pick, I think, in taking him because one, he's a wing. He plays a position of need and he has the dimensions of a player that you need at that position being six eight seven foot wingspan same as say herb jones or you know a lot of your best perimeter defenders your jeremy grants they have the exact measurements so he fits the billing of the type of player that is most valuable in today's nba but like jared vanderbilt jared vanderbilt had the talent he didn't necessarily have the opportunity and there's three parts of this there's talent there's work ethic and then there's opportunity i think jared vanderbilt had talent and he had work ethic. He came to the Nuggets with a broken foot, and he basically had to miss most of his rookie season. 
played at the very end and we saw just like Peyton Watson, we saw a flash like, okay, there it is. Let's see what happens going into the next year. And we all thought, man, this guy has a lot of talent. Hopefully his role expands in year two. And it didn't. And I do think that there is a chance with Peyton Watson, everybody looks at him and goes, perfect. Next year, pencil him in for 15, 20 minutes a game off the bench. I'm, I don't know if that's the case. I would love for him to get opportunity in these next four games. Right now, we have basically a one and a half game sample size. We have last game and we have a half a game against the Phoenix Suns where, he, you know, you go, okay, he looks pretty good. If he plays the same way over the next four games where you go, wow, this guy is really good. I don't think he's going to break a playoff rotation. I've seen some people throw that out. Even Jamal Murray had a mysterious quote in his postgame commentary where he said, we got to get these guys, meaning Christian Brown and Peyton Watson, we have to get these guys ready for the playoffs. And I think a lot of people thought, is he going to play in the playoffs? I would be absolutely shocked if that happened. But if he plays well these next four games, it may alter the way the team looks at him going into the offseason. And when I see the team, by the way, I think Calvin Booth views him as a piece of the future. The coaching staff is another question. I don't know. Mike Malone has been very slow to play rookies, you know, second-year players. But I do think there's something to him gaining a little bit of momentum, especially you go up against KD again. Maybe you make an even bigger impact. Um, just see what happens there. So I'm excited for these next couple of games, even if everybody else is uh, not quite as excited. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Um, you guys, grow. getting to know yourself is a lifelong process, especially because there's always growing and changing in your life. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding of yourself because sometimes we don't know what we want. We don't know why we react the way that we do until we talk some things out. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I like that part there because oftentimes that journey of self-discovery, you need somebody that connects with you. So I like that part about, hey, if you find somebody by no fault of their own, they're just not the right fit for you, look into somebody else. They'll provide you somebody else who maybe, just maybe connects with you on a little bit of a deeper level. Visit betterhelp.com slash LockedOnNBA today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash LockedOnNBA. We'll be right back with more Locked On. Back here on Locked On Nuggets, Adam Otto's flying solo. Matt Moore will be back tomorrow. I want to talk about the new CBA now and look at all of the different changes, at least the ones that have been made public so far. I think with anything, the first take you have on something of this nature is often incomplete. And even though this has been announced for the last couple of days, new details continue to come out. So I suspect that a lot of these changes are going to evolve over the coming days, but they are relatively big changes. Now, first thing that's important is this agreement should provide the NBA to finish out this decade, meaning the 2020s, without a labor stoppage, without a season being canceled, which is in and of itself, at face value, a pretty nice thing. As somebody who has lived through multiple strikes and multiple seasons being shortened because of those strikes or, or lockouts, depending on which side opts out of the agreement, um, it always sucks. 
There's nothing worse than you get excited for a, t- a season. You have a team that's ready to compete. And by the way, Denver's in that window. If you enter a labor stoppage on a year where you're like, man, this was our year. And all of a sudden you have seasons. I remember, I can't remember what year it was, 2011, I think, where the season was so condensed. There wasn't just back-to-backs. There was back-to-back-to-backs. Think about how absurd it would be to go back to that. Can you imagine a season where you had to play the third night in three days? I mean, it would be absolutely absurd. So I'm glad, first and foremost, that that is not happening. There's also, it should be noted, and something I think about a lot, Not I know not everybody does, but I do, and I find it interesting, that viewership for the NBA is down while revenue is up. And I don't know if that's always a healthy thing that is going on, the split between those two things. You would like it to be that eyeballs are the thing that matters, but I think the NBA has found ways to really monetize their product um, separate from viewership in a lot of different ways. And that, to me, again, it's smart business. You always want to maximize. You want to squeeze as much profit as you can out of a thing. But I do think that when things get too far away from is our product in a healthy place, when you does it really matter? We can make money off of it even when it's not. That can be a little concerning. I saw the stat going around that viewership for the women's NCAA game, which, by the way, was fantastic, even though it's led to three horrible days of conversation online, the absolute worst way to talk about sports. It was a fantastic game, and it really was a fantastic tournament. But the fact that that game outpaced any NBA game this season, to me, is one of those things that tells you, yeah, the NBA is losing the viewership. They're losing the traditional part of it. Nonetheless, this, as the CBA will show, there's new and new revenue streams coming in and teams, owners, players, everybody is making more and more money. So the first rule that I think is the biggest and high, most high profile one is that players can now invest in teams, um, gain equity. This one to me is the scariest one or one of the scarier ones on principle. I think a lot of people look at rules like this and they think about them on principle. On principle, this one, um, you know, I understand it. Players being able to, if you remember years back, Michael Jordan was an owner, an investor in the Wizards, and he had to sell his shares in order to play for the Wizards. And it actually got kind of messy when he tried to like buy back out after his second retire, third retirement. Um, There was some complications to it. A little bit of like um, trusted partners becoming untrusted partners of Michael Jordan. So I understand this on principle. It seems like a good idea. I, a lot of the things that came out of this CBA were things that were not discussed very much in the public. Oftentimes when there's something, a major labor dispute, the conversation is taking place in the public and everybody is sort of exploring the ramifications of it as best they can. My belief is that with sports leagues, the law of unintended consequences is stronger than the than anything else. Most of what happens when you make sweeping changes to the way a league operates or the way the league makes money or any of those rules is there are unintended consequences that you don't foresee and then those becoming bigger than whatever obstacle it was you were trying to um, trying to fix. We can see this with some of the like way the game has evolved on the court. You know, you put certain rules in place because you don't like, you know, hand checking. We don't want this or that. And all of a sudden the corner three becomes really important. Nobody thought we need more corner threes. We need more spacing here or there. They just wanted you to stop being physical out on the perimeter. And all these ripple effects about the entirety of how the game is played now is completely different. You can also look at the dress code, which David Stern did because he felt like the league was, to be perfectly frank, he thought it was too black and too not reaching white America. So he said, we're going to put these guys in suits. Well, that slowly evolved into these guys now are about fashion 
you know, it wasn't just, I'm going to wear a suit. It's I'm going to wear a designer suit. I'm going to wear a designer clothing. And all of a sudden now you have guys that are coming to the arena and, um, you know, David Stern, when he put this rule in, did not foresee what Russell Westbrook, that was not like, Hey, I want these guys doing high fashion, but that's what it evolved into. That's a low leverage one. I don't think it matters, but it is as an example of, Hey, look at how this thing played out over years, players being able to invest in teams. So again, on principle, it seems to make sense. My fear with it is what restrictions are in place. And as there's a lot of, we'll get to this more on the gambling side. How can this be used as a weapon to leverage your own um, salary cap? You know, that would be my big fear. You get a team that is willing, say a Mark Cuban, an outside-the-box ownership thinker, because I think a lot of owners, like the Cronkies, I don't know if the Cronkies are offering ownership stakes. They didn't want to do it to Tim Conley, and he mentioned we're not a startup. You know, the Cronkies would be an example on the far extreme where I would be kind of surprised if they used this as a tool um, to make their team better. I don't think they will. But what happens if Luka Doncic, let's say, gains an ownership stake in the Clippers this summer? You know, maybe he gets it on cheap. Well, look at that. The Clippers, you know, the, the, the their price is a little bit low. He's able to buy in. And then in a year's time, demands a trade to the Los Angeles Clippers, whereby his investment is about to double or triple. Those are the types of things that would worry me. Now, the Clippers are maybe a bad example because they're already worth a lot of money. But you can look at the Charlotte Hornets with a new ownership group coming in. You know, Charlotte... One of the, probably one of the lower valued teams. Luka Doncic invests in them, knowing that he is going to force his way eventually to there. Not only have you created this weird um, situation where players are um, have ulterior motives and are taking advantage of it, but now you might have actually put yourself where players are incentivized to do those very things. So again, I don't know how this will play out. We'll see. But to me, it's one of those things that was not really discussed until it came out. And I look at that and I go, I would bet the unintended consequences of this rule are greater than whatever principle or, or, or consequences we foresaw. Um, players can also be sponsored by gambling uh, ventures, sports gambling ventures and uh, cannabis industry. This one to me probably has equal, if not greater uh, ramifications. People don't know this, but you know, NBA players... The amount of people that are trying to scam players out of money is pretty out of control. And there have been high-profile players. I think a lot of people think, oh, this is just, you know, maybe the dumb players. We watched the documentary. This guy was dumb, and he let somebody manage his money. Tim Duncan got taken. A guy everybody considers to be a very thoughtful, smart, and conservative, meaning he's not out there flashing his money, got taken for a lot of money, had to go to court for many years and sue somebody. Um, Mike Miller, another guy that got taken by his financial advisor for some shady practices. Um, and by the way, was somebody that was recommended by Mickey Harrison's son and when he was with the Miami Heat, meaning the owner's son is saying, hey, talk to this guy. He's great. You invest with him in some company you don't understand, and all of a sudden you get taken. Well, what industries are more um, clouded and shrouded in mystery than the cannabis industries and the, and the gambling in industries? These, to me, are, the, are two industries that are very volatile and very concerning. So opening this up and saying, hey, if the NBA is doing it, why don't we just allow the players? To me, again, the law of unintended consequences is a little too strong here. On principle, is it right to say, hey, if the NBA is doing this, the players should? Of course. But it's another one I look at and I just say, is this actually good for the league? And then not to mention, you know, there's big sports books and maybe there's restrictions on which it, gambling books you can invest in or what have you. But there's also a bunch of startups and the startups are all, often very strongly leveraged. You can foresee a small book having a major investment from a major player. You know, somebody that has 
Um, I'm just going to use like a young player. So Zion Williamson, let's say, who has tons of money and is probably going to make a billion dollars in his career. Can you afford to put a hundred million into this high upside venture where all of a sudden that venture is so leveraged on a single bet or a series of bets that that player is actually incentivized to go against it. You could lose. I mean, and it, to put it another way, do you want players to be in position where it is financially beneficial for them to affect the outcome? Whether or not they do it or not, the integrity of it, whatever, you just don't want to be in those positions. So to me, that's a little bit concerning. The sides agreed to the smoothing of the salary cap once the next national broadcast rights deal is struck. This one is obviously a foul out from 2015 when the players were very adamant that the ownership groups were trying to steal money from them and they wanted that money up front. Again, the the principle was correct. Why should you guys get to smooth out this money why don't we just get it all right now these ownership these owners are trying to 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 pull a fast one on us well what really ended up happening was something nobody talked about which was the unintended consequence of the warriors having this ability to use an enormous amount of of, uh cap space in in this one year kevin durant became available creating a, a, a super team so smoothing of the salary cap as this next tv deal is expected to boost everything up um Then the salary cap is increasing. I talked about this one in the last segment. I I referenced it earlier on that the NBA is making more money off of things. They are now going to add basketball-related income. It's not every way that a team makes money, but it's now more more and more ways uh, as time goes on. And now one area of basketball-related income that is being increased is that um, this will be for – let me see here. Um, what is this one here? It, it is the amount of license, like the licensing money, which they expect to be $160 million for next year, split between owner and player. So basically $160 million of new, I think I copy and pasted this one wrong because they're adding about $160 million of basketball related income that comes just from licensing, um, licensing agreements. So this one will be a, so this is just, again, getting more money that is being distributed amongst all the players, which again is going to boost all of the revenues for the league that goes towards players. And then the midseason tournament, this is a big one, likely starting next season. And it's going to be um, integrated into the regular season, at least in part. The group player, the pool play part will be regular season games that then seed you into a tournament. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm interested in principle and trying to make the regular season interesting. And I'm interested in a tournament that maybe is separate right now. It feels so foreign to American born players. I know it's way more common in Europe. Their sports league have these mid season tournaments that aren't the big one, but they are, they do matter. There's multiple trophies in a year and yes, there's the big one, but there's also these little trophies that, that matter. It's so foreign to American audiences. Cause we don't have anything similar to this really in our, in our sports in, in baseball in football in hockey and in basketball. Um, but nonetheless, we'll see if it plays out the way he, that he intends. They didn't shorten the regular season. And I suspect that this is going to be a thing that maybe over time catches fire, you know, teams kind of get into, but I think initially I'm, I think it's going to be very uneven which teams are really into it and which teams are not. And I imagine there's going to be a lot of kinks to work out. The prize is $500,000 per player for the winning team, which is kind of wild when you think about, you know, Jokic is going to make $500,000 in, I don't know how many games, roughly two games, you know, based on his salary. So that's the bonus for him is very, very small. The bonus for a player like, say, a Colin Gillespie or, 
you know, uh, Vlatko Chanchar is very, very big. He makes $500,000 roughly in 20 or 30 games. So for that, for those players, it'll be so big, but those are not the players that we expect to be going hard in this tournament. So to me, I find that one to be a little bit uh, interesting. We'll see how it plays out. I don't, this is one that's, I'm the most TBD. I'm not really for or against. I will say that the NBA season, this is the first year where I felt like it was too long and players just have cared less and less each year. My fear is that this is designed to make players care more. And I'm not sure it is. And because of the trend, if you just ask me, do players care more about the regular season now or less than they did last year? I would say less. And if you did that every year, I would probably say less every year for about 10 years. This is a trend where every year players seem to care a little bit less. Is this going to revise that or revive that? I'm pessimistic. Um, I'm not. I'm not really buying it just yet. So we'll have to wait and see how this uh, how this all plays out. Um, speaking of regular season games that are not that exciting, um, have you tried buying tickets lately? It can be such a pain in the you know what. It shouldn't be this stressful. Game time is the fastest and easiest way to buy tickets on all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can stop stressing over the tickets and start getting hyped for the fun you'll have. They got flash deals on last-minute tickets, so you can set a little reminder and then it'll email you, hey, prices are going down on this game uh, for whatever reason. Maybe that gives you an indication that, hey, Jokic not playing, prices going down. You can get cheap deals. I know some people, by the way, that use game time this last week. Jokic is out last minute. They it wasn't until the last minute that they went to buy. Oh, Jokic is out. Let me hop on there. Guess what? People were selling courtside tickets for very, very, very cheap. So if you ever wanted to sit courtside, you never know. Those flash deals on the Game Time app can get you a really great deal at the last minute. So snag the tickets without the stress using Game Time. Download the Game Team app, create an account, and then use promo code Locked On NBA for twenty dollars off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account at Redeem and Redeem code Locked On NBA for twenty dollars off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest prices guaranteed. We'll be right back with more Locked On Nuggets. All right, final segment here. By the way, because um, I know a lot of people are, are have been asking about the Jokic piece of this. I have been told uh, with people from the team that this is strictly precaution, that there is, again, an injury, but if it was a playoff game, he'd be available and probably you wouldn't notice it. So I do think that this is a matter of the Nuggets trying to be healthy. And by the way, Jokic has been in the playoffs four times. The team has been shorthanded in meaningful ways every single year. The first year, Will Barton, who was a big piece of the team, especially at that time, suffered an injury, came back, and remember famously got booed by the home crowd in the playoff game at home because of how bad he was playing in the playoffs. Um, he clearly was not healthy, and uh, and it cost Denver. In the next season, Gary Harris did not play. The Nuggets go down three games to one to the Utah Jazz. Gary Harris didn't play in any of those. He was the starting uh, shooting guard and the best defender on the team. He would be like KCP being out. If KCP was out right now, your confidence in the Nuggets, even in the first round, would be really, really low. You would be very nervous about that. People don't even mention that when they talk about Denver going down 3-1. Donovan Mitchell having a great first round. Well, guess what? Denver didn't have their best perimeter defender until quarter two of game six. And I always have said this. After quarter, after the first quarter, Donovan Mitchell in game six, I think, had like 20 points in the first quarter. After that, I think he scored 30 points total over the next seven quarters. Gary Harris made a huge impact on that. The following year, 
You, of course, or the following two years, you, of course, don't have Jamal Murray. And then in the last year, you don't have Jamal Murray or Michael Porter Jr. The Nuggets have been short a starter or a sixth man every single playoffs. That's wild. That's wild. So for me, Denver being extra cautious makes perfect sense. Getting back to the CBA here. Um, players no longer face discipline for marijuana use. I think this one is a long time coming. The, the league has long sort of looked away at this, um, play, and players have known that. I don't think players have been walking on eggshells. Making it out in the open, will it have any consequences, unintended consequences? Probably not, but we'll see. I think it's the right move. Um, we'll see what happens, though. All NBA voting will be positionless. I hate this one. I hate this one. So all NBA, I, it's understood that, hey, this is a guards league. Like there's not every year. And right now you have Embiid, Jokic, who's going to be first team all NBA. Like we can't, we can't have one of those guys miss. I hate it. Why? The thing about all NBA is that from a historical standpoint, all NBA is not a perfect way of telling the story of the season, but it is a nice shorthand of let's go back and look. And there were years where, the point guards weren't very good and the forwards were amazing. And the fact that Charles Barkley was second team, you would look at it and go, man, that was a loaded year for forwards or shooting guard, whatever it is. And it didn't matter. It helped us sort of contextualize the season. If you go in now in a guard league and you're going to end up having four guards, you know, or two, th three centers, I think that that actually hurts your ability to know what the season was about. You can almost go through all NBA and just by looking at the talent can say, oh, this was a sender heavy league. That was a guard heavy league. This is a wing heavy era. The fact that you don't do that now feels to me like, you know, like a participation trophy, trophy like, like, hey, we don't want to, we can't have Embiid be second team. He's too good. He's an MVP candidate. So we have to like change these things. I, th I hate things that meaningless or pointlessly change historical precedent. And this to me was a problem that didn't need fix. It created good debate. It was fun. And now we're going to have all NBA teams that are like, that's not a team that would never make sense. I don't know what the guards are. I don't know what the wings are. Um, so to me, that's a small thing and I just don't like it. They also made the rule where you have to play 65 games. Again, I feel like the NBA keeps trying to fix, well, not fix a problem, but adjust to a problem. Players don't like to play games. They load manage. They take time off. Well, rather than try to fix that, they just try to adjust. And what I don't like about this is there's 65 game minimum. Okay, that should be a good thing. Even though only one MVP has ever played fewer than 68 games. That was Bill Walton. He's the only one. And now you have candidates, two of the candidates that would fall below that 68 threshold. So they made it 65 even lower. But what I don't like is reportedly there's a bunch of conditions that make this a soft number. Meaning a team, a player could theoretically have 60 games, but still qualify for the MVP because like, well, there was only 65 and then this happened and that. And I just don't like it. Like what, at what point does it just not matter that you put a line in? If you draw a line in the sand, but it's a soft line, it's not really a line at all. So for me, I understand the intent. I don't know that it's going to work out the way everybody wants, um, but we'll see. Maybe next year this, you know, encourages, like if it happened this year, does Embiid play in Denver? because he's like, I really want that MVP and I can't afford to risk it. I don't know. So maybe it works, but I have a feeling that it's going to be too soft of a rule that will be like, okay, come on. Um, there are changes that are being made to penalize the highest spending teams that far exceed the luxury tax. This is, of course, the teams like the Clippers and teams like the Warriors who have seen... I've talked about this a lot, but back in the day, you had billionaires that owned teams and a few millionaires that weren't quite billionaires, but billionaires, and they ranged from $1 billion to $5 billion. Now your ownership groups range from sub-billion to $70, 80000000000 billion. So much money that the ordinary taxes 
that you put in place just didn't affect a Steve Ballmer. They might have affected a Mark Cuban, but they're not going to affect a Steve Ballmer who has 70 million. And oh, I lost $40 million this year because my luxury pack tax payments were so high. That's like losing 20 cents to the average person. So they had to put in some stricter rules. Clearly, there were ownership groups that were no longer concerned about the way about the spending and the tax. So they changed them. Um, the new CBA creates a tax apron, 17 and a half million uh, above the luxury tax line, and teams that exceed it will not be able to use the taxpayer mid-level exception to add a player, nor will they be able to bring back more money uh, in a trade for the money that they send out. And this has had real implications for, on the margins for those teams that are spending a lot. I don't know what we're going to call this, a second apron, the super apron, whatever it is. Um, but the teams that that would apply to this year are the Clippers, Warriors, Bucks, Celtics, Mavericks, and Suns. And if you think about, those are some of the best teams in the NBA. And they're all teams that have players that they added through those exceptions or on the margins that will help them round out their roster to make it more complete. I think that this is a ultimately a good rule. I fear the law of unintended consequences again, but on this one, you had to start to look at this and say, hey, there are some teams that just don't care about the penalty. How do we make it harder? And I think one way that a team best rounds out their roster is with those mid-level exception, taxpayer mid-level exceptions. So being able to take that out, I do think will affect your PJ Tuckers, um, your role players that get added late in the, in the roster construction, but make a huge difference. I think it'll balance that out. Um, teams below the tax will have expanded opportunities in free agency or to generate larger trade exceptions as an incentive to spend more. So I think this is a, a trying, they're trying to affect it in two ways. The teams that have those deep pockets and are willing, especially they're in big markets to spend ridiculous amount. Let's make it a little bit harder for them. Once they go above a certain line, let's make it a little bit harder for them to have an advantage and let's make it a little bit easier for the teams that are way down here to, uh, to catch up. I think these are ultimately a good rule, uh, good moves. We'll see how they play out. Again, we'll just see if teams are able to take advantage of this. Um, the luxury tax brackets will rise yearly as much as the salary cap does. Under the previous CBA, they did not. They were locked in at $5 million increments. Now, if the cap jumps up a lot, the, those numbers will expand a lot. And an effort, and I like this one too, in an effort to help teams retain players, veteran contract extensions can start as high as 100% of the previous year. It was 120% below or before. So you go up a little bit on what you can sign your own veteran players. I think this one affects um, Bruce Brown specifically, where Denver can now offer him a little bit more money than it previously thought. So their odds of retaining him maybe go up a little bit. And then this also works for non-max rookie contract extensions, which is big for Christian Brown eventually. You know, this will eventually Christian Brown will be a non-max player, but he'll be a rookie. And your ability to give him five years instead of four allows you more team control. I like this one because I think these are the type of we always talk about superstars forcing their way. I still think that's going to happen. Like superstars make so much money that I don't think it actually matters to them, you know. Oh, I lost 20 million because I left the Oklahoma city thunder, but I went to the Lakers. Like they don't care about that 20 million and people try to make a big deal of it. The fifth year, those guys can make that money back up on the back end. If they really want to go to larger markets, the guys like the Christian Browns are the one to me that it's like, Hey, that's the one where you should be able to extra incentivize a player to stay with you. And a, this is like a Christian Brown rule to me, the ability for Denver to have him for the next three seasons and then offer him a five-year extension where you control his rights for five years, that gives you a huge advantage if you feel like you found the perfect role player that you would rather be your role player 
rather than a guy that makes his name there and then goes to another bigger market. Um, there's a third two-way player contract allowed per team. I just like this one because I think it gives you an opportunity. I mean, eventually, I wonder what the limit is on the amount of two-way type players, you know, prospects that are not draft picks, but later prospects that you can kind of bring into your program. Maybe it's healthy for a league that a team ends up being able to create a whole secondary team of prospects that they control. I don't know. But a third one, I do think it's intriguing, and I think it benefits the smarter scouting teams. So hopefully that's Denver. And then the one-and-done rule is going to remain in place with college. There was a lot of talk over the last year that maybe this rule would go away and that teams would um, – you know, that we're going to have this double draft that one year they'll say, you know what, the one and done rules gone. High school players can come right back to the NBA and we'll have some draft in the upcoming two, three years where you get all the best of the college prospects and the high school prospects. And I think that would be a problem. I think that the NBA is good enough right now that the one and done rule is actually good for the NBA because I don't think you should be getting prospects that are so raw that we're flooding the NBA with 18-year-olds that take one, two years anyway just to be semi-adequate prospects. I think it's better that they all get this extra year of seasoning. I wouldn't even be opposed to a two-year rule, uh, meaning players. It would help the college game. The college game right now, I think, is not very good, in part because we don't get to know any of these guys. And in part, with exceptions of about five guys every year, most guys could benefit from a second year anyway. There are the exceptions, your Zions, your Kevin Durant's, your uh, um, Anthony Davis's. These guys that one year you look at them and you go, this guy should have been in the NBA as a high schooler. So that's why I say there is some kind of exception that could be made for the top players. Like maybe it's if you are a top five pick, um, then you can go straight you know, to the NBA or whatever. But if you're not, maybe it's best to keep it going. But nonetheless, I'm glad that the one and done rule remained in place rather than take it away i got a couple questions here from some people that I asked at the top, so I'll get to them. Is there any chance Colin Gillespie is ready for backup point guard next year? There's, of course, a chance. One thing that I keep thinking about is the Nuggets are going to be in position next year where, if you look at it, Peyton Watson, Christian Brown, Colin Gillespie, Ismail Kanmagate. We all sort of want those guys to be your backups next year, but none of them are proven. Outside of Christian Brown, who I think right now I could comfortably say deserves to be a backup uh, guard in the NBA like he's good enough to be that right now okay he you could pencil in and say he's proven it the rest of the guys and we can even throw Zeke Naji in there if Denver come back next year with the same starting five which was great this year but hey we need our bench you know it's all about the bench can it be better and you say well we're going to go with with Gillespie Brown Watson Zeke Kamagate you have no idea if that's good you have that might be a disaster that might be the worst backup five in the entire NBA um, or it might be the best and they just need a runway. So I think Denver's in an uncomfortable position where next year Calvin Booth probably is going to have to bring in players that are better than those guys on day one with the hope that those guys are better than whatever players you brought in by game 82. And that's a tough spot to be in. And then, of course, it puts Michael Malone or whoever the head coach is at that time. It puts that person in a tough spot of, hey, do I lose games because I'm playing this group of really young players or do I not? So then you start to go, okay, who's most likely to get cut out? Well, Christian Brown's most likely to stay. Zeke Naji, again, if he's here next season, is most likely to be in the rotation next. And then you just have mysteries around Colin, Peyton, and Ishmael Kamagate. If you're a Nuggets fan, do you want it to come down to Peyton Watson's um, success comes down to a rookie undrafted point guard? It's tough. So I suspect that Colin Gillespie will be on the roster in some capacity next year. But I don't think he will be the second guard. I think there will be another guard that he has a chance to beat out, but it'll be uphill. 
Um, how concerned are you about this team's health? Thinking about Zeke and KCP, but others as well. Not very, and mostly just because I talk to people with the organization and they don't seem very concerned. Are guys banged up? Absolutely. But I don't think they're any more banged up than most teams, uh, every other team. And then on top of that, I think that they feel that whatever injuries are lingering right now for those guys, uh, a week and a half off, which is basically what these guys are going to get, a week and a half off is long enough for them to all feel as close to 100% as you can. I think the Nuggets are frustrating right now and how little they seem to care. But I think the team is excited that they are going to be the healthiest they've been entering the playoffs. I think that is the thing, knock on wood. I think that is the thing that they're excited for. Uh, Steve Wynn asks, is Michael Porter Jr. out of Malone's circle of trust? After an amazing third quarter, MPJ tried to check back into the game, but Malone seemed to change his mind and not sub him back in. Rooks were playing well, though. I think that last part is more it than anything. He did get back into the game. It was something I noted at the game as well. Michael Porter was going off. He had 29. His season high was 31. I expected him to break it, and he finished with 29, in large part because he didn't get back into the game. I think right now this is more about those rookies playing well than anything. The one thing I will say is, I was hoping we would get Christian, Peyton, MPJ, Gordon, Murray to close that game. We got Bruce in there instead of uh, Christian, I believe. And, you know, they won anyway. But I would have loved to have just seen that group. Um, Malone always gives you like 80% of what you want. Vincent De Julio says, who are the top three players you are most confident in heading into the playoffs? In, in other words, health, production, and current known limitations. Um, top three players, Jokic, number one by a mile. Number two has got to be Jamal Murray, even though, you know, he, we haven't seen it as consistently as we'd like at this point. He's been there before and at his best, he's actually been phenomenal. And I think he's a guy that motivation goes far and low motivation. You get inconsistency, high motivation, like a playoffs. I think we're going to see the best. So he's number two. And then number three for me is KCP. You know, he's not as good of a player. And I, so if, if I'm understanding this question, right, it's more about expected to do their job i think kcb is going to do his job i think he's going to guard very very well and i think he's going to knock down his open shots and he's going to play hard and, and all of those things so outside of that you get to you know aaron gordon michael porter who at this moment with how aaron gordon has been so inconsistent and his free throw shooting and some of the lack around him i might be more confident in michael porter which is really crazy to say maybe a little recency bias there but um you know aaron gordon hasn't necessarily looked like we'd want him to look over the last two months of the season and then Ryan Ortiz says, should Jokic try to play today, get 16 assists, and then be shut down? Even if he doesn't get the assist, this should be uh, his last game if we win. This is an interesting question because if he plays tonight, will he get 16 assists? Probably not, but it's, it's possible. I mean, the Houston Rockets are not very good. In fact, I think his – did he have – I'm going to look it up real quick while we're live. Um, I'm going to look up when his high was this season for assists because I think the Houston game – no, it's not on there. Houston, he had 12 assists is the highest he's had against Houston this year. So interesting. So he's had 12 assists, 10 assists, and 8 assists in his three matchups. He hasn't played more than 27 and a half minutes uh, against Houston this year. They've, they've been wins. Um, so I don't know if he can get to 16 tonight. It would be fun. My theory, though, about him and how he should play you know, half of the, the Phoenix games or whatever – that would really hurt his triple-double average. I mean, he's not going to get 10 assists and a half against Phoenix, I don't think. So I don't know that Jokic cares about that triple-double average. In fact, I think there's a sneaky part of him that wouldn't mind being, um, you know, under. Like, if, if he finishes at 9.9, .9, I think he would really help his anti-stat padding narrative. So maybe that's what we're going to see. 
I just think either way, I don't see him getting to that triple-double average. So I don't think it's going to happen for him this year. All right, that does it, guys. That was a lot of information, a lot of stuff. We went pretty long, 50 minutes. Yikes, I'm going to get yelled at from corporate. Um, but enjoyed the show today, and the Nuggets got Houston tonight, an opportunity to win the Western Conference for the first time. We'll all look forward to that. Hit the like button on the way out. We'll see you next time.